0: You know, when Barack Obama left the White House to go pick up Five Guys. We're gonna go get
1: some burgers. Party one.
0: That's what makes Five Guys a treat and special.
1: John Eckberg, the CEO of Five Guys Europe. Five Guys has a global cult following. Five Guys burgers and fries. It was banging.
0: The Covent Garden was the very first Five Guys outside of the U.S. We knew that we weren't going to be advertising. We're entirely relying
1: on someone tasting a great burger and fry and and telling their neighbors or their friends. It has to be, <sighs> that's fantastic that covent garden location sold more than any in the world it did yeah by far i'm responsible for 225 restaurants now how do you stop getting a little bit sloppy and complacent we've actually gotten better the key to that is as the ceo of a business that's gone through such chaos when was your hardest time so i had uh two young children
0: the fact is that there were moments where they woke up and needed both their parents and and i wasn't there um You'll hurt the people you care about
1: in ways that you don't intend, in ways that you don't understand. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. John, I've, I've read quite extensively through your story, and, um, I guess my first question is when you, when you think back to your pre twenties, right? What is the, what are the most important things from that era of your life that shaped your perspective and approach to the world and to business today? Wow. Well, first
0: I grew up in a very counter cultural isolationist family. Um, so we didn't, we didn't watch TV. We didn't celebrate birthdays or holidays and, um, I kind of got up at 5am to practice violin for an hour, um, before school, um, and had music lessons after school every day. Um, and, um, so it was very, um, different. Um, and I think I always, I think I grew up feeling different with this kind of longing to have a sense of belonging. Um, and that was always something that I was looking for in my professional life, I think, um, as well. I would have been a fourth generation doctor if I'd gone into medicine. Um, And my father told me that the profession was changing and it wasn't so much about patients and, um, and doctors and kind of the relationship that can develop in terms of health and bringing your, you know, your health to your doctor and getting advice. And it was changing in America dramatically. And so he, he said, you know, don't, uh, don't do med. You know, I'm not encouraging you to do medicine. So I knew I had to kind of find a different um, role in life. And I, I read um, Ayn Rand in high school. Um, and not suggesting that uh, that uh, she's gotten everything right, but one one interesting thing that she did propose was that there's there could be something noble in business. Be, you know, being a successful entrepreneur could be. A noble thing. And so the the kind of orientation from my family was, make sure that you do something important or or, um, in your life. And that meant, you know, taking care of other people or doing something that was, um, had some greater purpose to it than kind of just making money. Um, But that seed of a thought that being in business could actually be a noble profession, and you actually could do something important to make people's lives better um, and take care of people in a different way. In business, was kind of I think an important penny to drop for me um, when I was when I was eighteen. Um, but yeah, it was it was a it was, a, it was a definitely a different upbringing than than most. And that,
1: that sense of belonging was something I've been searching for my whole life. Do you think you've been searching for that sense of belonging more so than the average person? Um. I think so. I mean, you know, I, I,
0: th- I think if you have something in abundance, you take it for granted, maybe. Um, right. And it was something that I definitely didn't have. And, and that I, um, and I, and I very much felt, um, you know, an outsider looking in. Um, and I've, I've, I saw this, you know, other, other people had community, other kids had community and, and, and kind of broad based friendships and, and a sense of really kind of relaxed, belonging. And I kind of always had this kind of anxious drive that, you know, looking for that. Um, and, you know, I think business was, um, you know, certainly lived that
1: out in the business world um, as well. You you had a um, quite a journey through banking and being a, being what we'd call like a, a regional counselor and all these things. And eventually you, you came back to the UK kind of where I wanted to, to start this, this story off um, in 2010, I believe. That's right. Um, your good friend, Sir Charles Dunstan, who was the founder of Carphone Warehouse, hmm. um, and you went into business originally, and then you went, went on in search of um, a new business to, to sort of partner with him on, yes. and that's kind of where the Five Guys stories begins. Yes, well,
0: I, I'd been a student here a long time ago and lived in a, a tiny basement one room flat, much smaller than this studio is um, and uh, Charles lived upstairs with his his sister and girlfriend, and they invited me up for drinks one day um, and they pretty much adopted me um, for my year abroad um, and we went to their parents' home in Cambridge and to Norfolk for for a holiday and um, they so they really made England feel like a home uh, and I always was always my ambition to return with a non-students budget, uh, (laughs) to, to England. Um, and so the chance came in 2010, um, and moved back here. And, uh, Charles had just spun TalkTalk out from Carphone Warehouse. Um, and so I guess you can't be CEO of two publicly traded businesses. So he became chairman of both and CEO of neither and began thinking a bit more as an investor and, we got to talking and thinking what's the next big business that opportunity that we, we could leverage his experience and reputation in retail. Um, but we wanted something that Amazon wasn't so much a threat to, um, as electronics, Um, online felt like a real threat, um, to that industry segment. And we thought food and beverage has got to be a segment that's a bit more protected from the online world. Um, you should, you kind of have to show, this is before delivery kind of blew up. You kind of have to show up and, and, and eat your food where it's prepared more. Um, so we thought that that would protect uh, you from the online competitive world. And, but we didn't know anything about food and beverage, neither of us did. Um, and so we went looking for a great, concept that wasn't in the UK that we thought could bring that expertise. We could bring the um, kind of operational UK property knowledge and hiring practices and um, market knowledge and partner with someone who would bring that food and beverage experience into the, into the proposition. And we talked to so many US concepts that weren't here um, and eventually kind of collided with the Morell family. There actually are five brothers, um, and their mom and dad. So there's seven in the family. Um, but five brothers who are the five guys who founded the business. And they were looking to go
1: global, having pretty much allocated the US amongst their franchisees. How many? So how many other concepts did, do you think you looked at? And was there any near misses? Was there any that you thought, you know what, maybe... Any other concepts that you nearly committed your, your life to? Yeah, so um, we talked with a lot of different concepts and um, still in contact with a lot of those, uh, those
0: concepts. Um, and some of them have been really helpful in terms of um, building the Five Guys business here. So, you know, if you can use insight from another concept that uh, maybe isn't a competitor or isn't here, um, that can be really helpful. And some of those still may may come to play. Um,
1: then why, why Five
0: Guys? Well, I think it starts with the product. Um, you know, it's it's such a simple, fantastic product. You know, it's just burgers. You know, the, the menu is like shockingly stark. I mean, it is burgers and fries, and that's it. Um, and but it, you know, when you when you take a bite of a Five Guys burger, when you when you when you have fries that are cooked exactly right, it is it's magical. I mean, it's and it's fantastic. I mean, it's a world-beating product and that was that was i think you know there's so many concepts have had gone like broad you know like um, you know, there's so many concepts in America where, like, you can get everything in the, in the menus like a Bible. And, you know, you kind of flip through the section. You're like, how can they possibly be preparing, preparing all this stuff at the top of the game? And um, and Five Guys was going, you know, completely against that, which was, you know, everybody told the Morel family, you know, you, you have to have a salad if you're going to, you know, be successful. You have to have, you know, c- chicken. You know, you can't just have a burger on your menu. And they're like, when we add other stuff to our menu, it just, like— blows our mind and we don't, we, we lose focus on making a great burger. And so I think part of their genius has been focus. You know, we're going to do just one thing and do it really well. Um, I mean, that, that was the thesis for the founding of the business was if you're going to have your mom over and, and make, make burgers, you know, what would you do? You would buy the highest quality ingredients you possibly can. You'd make everything fresh um, that, that was, I think the Morels were so far ahead of their time when they founded the business in 1986 um, because there's literally not a freezer in the five guys' equipment infrastructure. Everything is obsessively fresh. And right before the, we, we, we signed the joint venture to bring them here, there was a study done that said the number one criteria that anyone across the UK looked for in determining where you were going to eat. Was, was the freshness of the food. And whether it was white tablecloth or at a fast food place, it didn't matter, that was the most important criteria. And that was like the Morales
1: thesis, that you know, everything had to be freshly prepared that day or it went. Um, it's interesting because conceivably, it seems to me like they were very much at the right place at the right time. There was this macro change in public perception and awareness around food and what's going into food organic and vegan, all these kinds of these conversations around food started to emerge, which seems to have hurt a lot of big brands um, in a very uh, fatal way, whether it's in the sugar-based fizzy drink industry or whether it's in the fast food industry. Mm. Um, it's conceivable that the world could have gone another way. Maybe mm. we could have doubled down on liking even faster food that was yes. has more crap in it, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so... I just, I just wonder how important you think timing was in, in their thesis catching public that sort of public wave coming into shore. No, I think that's, I think that's very, I think you're very right about that. You know, the, the, our fries have
0: three ingredients in it: potatoes, the peanut oil we cook it in, and a dash of salt. Some of our competitors, you know, have like 16, 19 ingredients in their fries. And you're like, what do you, what else could there be? In in fries, you know. So from our perspective, our you know our, our fries start as potatoes in the beginning of the day. They're hand wash, hand cut, um, and then twice cooked to a very specific standard. Um, and you know, just keeping it again, just keeping it simple. Um, and I think I think it's very much. Um, I think they they, they position themselves in front of a tidal wave without without knowing it. Um, and that, that trend of freshness, um, I think was a huge, um, a huge win for the family. I think the other thing that they did, which was very early on trend, even early for when we found it here in the UK was customization, um, and having something exactly the way that you want it. Um, we have 15 free toppings, which means that you can have every burger, 250,000, ways just by the combinations of those, those toppings. Um, and everything is made by hand just for you. We don't cook anything until Steven walks in and says, you know, this is the burger that I want. Um, now the challenging thing is, is that as soon as you've placed your order, there's 249,999 wrong ways to make your burger. Um, so the customer, ser- one of the one aspect of customer service is getting that right, mm. the first time. Um, but customization was new. I think. I mean, in America, you know, it goes back to Harry met Sally and the way she ordered her salad in the you know in the restaurant. Um, you know is um, you know an example of how Americans want things just the way they want them. Um, But I think that's been a newer thing to Europe. You know, like the chef should know, you know, chef tell me how I should order this. Um, Mm. And saying, no, 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 it should be exactly the way you want it. Um, And I think that trend is, certainly the millennials are very much onto that. You know, I want it exactly the way that I want it. And Five Guys is really ready for that. The whole machine is like, um, uh, I liken it to, Putting a, a Ferrari engine on top of an ox cart and then racing it around a track. Mm-hmm. So we're very old school, very analog in our product in our production. It's very manual. Um, everything's handmade, um, and yet we can do, you know, a four thousand pound hour um, out of uh, you know of Oxford Circus making. You know, burgers and fries. Um, you'll see kind of 25, 30 people running around madly behind uh, an open kitchen uh, making your food. I think that was the other secret because Five Guys doesn't advertise. So there literally is no way for us to tell a, someone who doesn't know Five Guys what we're about or, you know, what makes us different or special. Um, we're entirely relying on someone walking into the restaurant seeing how the food is prepared tasting a great burger and fry and then telling their their neighbors or their friends you know hey look you've got to you got to try this um so having an open kitchen where you can see that freshness and the customization i think has been part of the um success of the business
1: it's almost like there's a set of really strong values underpinning the business and the the business has been reverse engineered maybe not even reverse engineered because when it's the case of a founding family still running it mm-hmm. i'm sure it all comes sort of intuitively to them but and in, in so in hindsight we look at it and go that's the point of genius that's the point of genius but it's all comes from these underlying values one of those is about the freshness of the ingredients and it all being very real so of course the kitchen would be open right because you've got nothing to hide yes but in hindsight you go well you know that's that's genius well no it's it would be strange to, to hide away the kitchen in such a context but um that that particular point about the kitchen being open at five guys is very different from all the other fast food restaurants That came before Five Guys that dominated the high street, where you'd order the burger and then something would go on in the bag, and then you'd get this thing wrapped up, given to you. Yes. I've also seen this trend with all these fast salad outlets where they put all of the vegetables, the carrots, and the the cucumbers on show in front of you as if to say, these are the carrots that are going to go into your salad. Yes. And it's more, you don't really, you don't think about it as a customer that much, but somewhere subconsciously, it's really, really, really matters, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, part of the the original founding of the
0: business, um, Jerry Morrell picked a very obscure location. Um, and said, look, if we can make this location work, we know we have something. It almost was like a speakeasy. Um, you know, we're like, you know, knock three times and, you know, someone will open the the slide window and, you know, you give the secret word and then you come in. And, and so Five Guys kind of had a little bit of that kind of coolness factor of like, hey, let me tell you about Five Guys. It's amazing. And, you know, you, maybe you haven't heard of it, certainly haven't seen it on TV or on the radio, but it's amazing. And if you, you know, come find out. So, you know, when Barack Obama left the White House in his limo to go pick up Five Guys in, for his office. You know, that was, you know, a, a great example of how, of course, you know, everybody knows who he is and that's kind of like a megaphone, but that's how Five Guys was discovered. That's how Five Guys built its business was one recommendation at a time. Um, and I can remember Covent Garden was the very first Five Guys outside of the U.S. And um, we'd spent a lot of money Paying for the bar that was there to leave, and then building the first five guys, and uh, the it, we, we were quite nervous. We, we were we were well into five figures, seven figures for you know for the new for the first store, and um, the night before opening, we we're like, what happens if nobody comes? And Jerry Morell laughed and said, you know, look, you picked a good location. Someone's going to walk by here, and. They'll walk in, we'll make them a great burger and they'll tell their neighbors and it'll be fine. And of course there was a queue at 4 a.m. in the morning and there was a queue around the building for the first
1: two years that the business was open until we opened up more Five Guys around there. Because people had tried it in America, including me, I tried it and I think I tried it in America before I tried it here. I'm 99% sure that I tried it on my way to Coachella one year or something. Mm. But, and then when it came here, I was like, oh, that's that amazing burger place from America. Mm. Is that why there was a key around the corner when you it were? It
0: was. There actually is a burger blogger community right. that's global. Ah, okay. And, and everybody talks about burgers and, you know, it's, it's one of those very um, articulate communities that, and there's a lot of debate about who has the best burger and why it's the best burger. And Five Guys is in that debate, in that mix. And so we're really fortunate for that. Um, and and actually, when Charles and I were, were were thinking about who to do business with, it really was when you know when Charles flew over and went to Five Guys in, in Manhattan it was like, this is fantastic. The product's fantastic. One thing that we did really differently in the UK was the property approach. Um, we thought the product was. It was a category winner. It was the best that we had that we could find. But it was positioned from a property perspective, and you know mostly in strip centers and, and kind of B locations in America. And we thought, let's give it the property presence that it deserves. And I think that positioning was a really important distinction that we made. Richard Collier, who runs our properties, has uh, done a fantastic job of picking the flagship locations to say there isn't a better premium burger than
1: five guys. And we're going to make sure that you discover us partly because of where we are. So you chose aspirational locations because you wanted to make the brand aspirational essentially? Well, we we knew that we we weren't going to be advertising. So
0: if you can't tell people about who you are, You have to rely upon the footfall and that which essentially becomes a word of mouth accelerator Um, so if you have a lot of people walking by your store some will make the decision to come in and then that larger group who comes in then kind of tells everybody else and and that's really the way the business grew and worked
1: you know you have this you have this rule where you don't do advertising Mm. has there ever been a time where you thought fuck? just want to just run a little Facebook ad. You know, the pandemic comes around, things start changing in the world. You think, fuck, I just want to, you know, I know you joined some of the delivery um, services, which was a which was a big big decision for the UK because yes. um, the US hadn't done that previously. That's right. But in those moments, do you not think, fuck, I just want to run a little... <laughs> it's real tempting, isn't it? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know,
0: when you think about the dashboard that most food and beverage executives have, you know, you have an advertising dial that you can you know, you can choose the quality of your messaging and the budget that you put in it and the way that you spend it. And all those dials are gone and off the off the table. So, you know, it, it does focus you on the things that you can do, which is making great burgers and fries, hiring people who, who are passionate about it. Um, you know, kind of back to the whole people thing. Um, the the people who are in the store make such a difference. Um, you know, food fundamentally is about passion. We all have, you know, you you remember the great food experiences that you've had. And you talk about them, and it's, it becomes part of your. You know, if you're on holiday, having great food is part of that experience, and um, having a passion about food is so important. And and and. Having, you know, I'm responsible for 225 restaurants now um, and 8,600 people a day get up and put on a red shirt and go into work in a Five Guys. And whether those people who are actually shaking fries and grilling burgers care about the product that they're making, the food that they're, that they're cooking, that's all the difference. Because all we have is the customer eating a great product. It can't be good, right? If a customer takes a bite of a burger and goes, huh, that's really good. that doesn't move the dial. Nothing happens. It has to be, that's fucking fantastic. You know, I'm going to go tell somebody who else, who who do I know who likes good food? I'm going to tell them about a burger or a fry, you know, the fries at Five Guys. It has to be that level good. And you only get that level good with people who pour their passion and their care into the food that they're preparing. And having that many people care about about burgers and fries is the, you know, I think the, what makes it successful.
1: You know, that, that sort of psychological device that's making people want to tell their friends, do you spend much time thinking about exactly why that is? Like, what is the, why would I care if I've had a great burger? Why would I care psychologically to tell my best mate about that burger? What is it doing for me?
0: That's next level thinking, Stephen. Um, And, and, and actually is, is the, I, I, one thing we have been able to do is to Encourage the Morels to widen their thinking a bit. Um, and delivery was a great example of that, where um, when they opened up a store near the Pentagon and a general called up Jerry and said, I'd like a thousand burgers at you know, noon. And uh, you know, Jerry bought a big sign and, and hung it up, no delivery and put it on the side of the building. Um, and you know, the thesis was right, which is that our burgers and fries taste best right off the grill. You know, it's the best food experience you can get. Um, But we convinced him that actually it wasn't just your cheap local, um, you know, guy who was delivering food. It was actually really high quality food. And more and more people were actually looking for really good food delivered.
1: Did he come and try it here? Yeah, yeah. From delivery? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Before Um, it
1: went to delivery? Before
0: it went to America, for sure. Um, But we convinced them that all of the better restaurant concepts were, were actually heading towards delivery. And so, gosh, five six years ago now, we we started we launched delivery in the in the UK, and it, and it really worked. Um, it kind of became about 20% of our sales and they saw that, of course, it's not as good as right off the grill, but it actually is a good product and people like it and it, and it can work. And, and if you work with your delivery and you have a commitment from your delivery partner to take care of the food as it's transported to the, to the customer, it can really work. Um, and we did a lot of stuff like, you know, telling people to, you know, pop, t- turn your oven on 200, pop the fries in for, fi- you know, just a couple of minutes, it'll really, you know, liven them up before you eat them. Um, so they saw that it worked here and they picked it up. And of course, during the pandemic, it was our lifeblood. Uh, you know, it would have been a very different journey um, if uh, there hadn't been delivery um, in the system. But we've been able to convince the Morels that some of those things that were were rules of the brand before
1: um, can actually be good for the brand and, and can work. And delivery was a good example of that. And I guess that's important because the world is changing. So like stubborn values are really good to some extent, but in a changing world, um, it's almost a bit like the Bible. You have to be able to look at the thing again and go, huh, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, so.
0: Indeed. And, and, and actually in the morale's defense, you know, they've, they've become successful. Who they are is saying no to change. You know, when everybody told them they should do a chicken sandwich, everybody told them they should do a salad. They were like, "No, no, no, it's too complicated. We take our eye off the ball on the kind of core of what we do, um, and helping them to dis- to discern that delivery actually is okay. You can be the best burger being delivered
1: because um, it doesn't compromise on their on their values, those core values of serving." food that your mother would love, basically. Exactly right. So exactly. they're willing to innovate, but, with, but I guess they're not compromising on their values then because those core cool values are still there, but yeah. now it's just about distributions changing a little bit. Well, you mean, you have a customer who wants a great burger and they happen to be watching
0: the football match and they're like, I am not leaving my chair, right? Mm. I'm, I'm watching the football match, and, but I want the best burger I can possibly get. So that customer, you
1: can still reach and, mm. and you can give them a, a really good product. When you think about the incumbents, then those, we'll talk about just the burger incumbents that were there in the, let's say in the European market before five guys arrived. Why do you think now from everything you've learned that incumbents often fall? What is it? Gosh, well, you know, I, 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 all I can say is that
0: I think part of it is the, the most enduring concepts will survive. Um, and I think if, if you look at Five Guys, you know, we, Five Guys wasn't successful because we put a slice of avocado, you know, on a burger. So it wasn't – there was nothing trendy about Five Guys. You know, the, the, the kind of – the 15 toppings that, you know, that you can put on a burger, whether it's, you know, grilled onions or mushrooms or cheese and, you know, lettuce, tomato. I fresh is trendy. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it is trendy, but I can't imagine it ever going out of trend. <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, you know, I know there are restaurant concepts where you walk into their kitchen and there's little, like, a bank of of microwaves. And they, like, kind of pull the stuff out and, you know, pop them in the microwaves. I mean, you know, I can't imagine that anyone would ever go, let's go back to that. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think, I think fresh is is now. A uh, an enduring expectation across price points. I mean, if you can have you know you know a a five guys that's incredibly obsessively freshed, you know why would you not if you could?
1: Mm. One of the things that I sometimes think about why incumbents fall is that um, quality and attention to detail declines as growth increases. Mm -hmm. So the more locations we have. Quality, I can see from your face that this is, <laughs> but obviously, I think about you know, I won't name names, McDonald's, but I, um, I just think you know, the more locations you have, especially this underlying franchise model, will really ultimately hurt the quality of the product. And if it hurts the, my quality, going back to what you said, if I have a bad burger, Milton Keynes, I'm less likely to go into McDonald's in Thailand. Yes. So, I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, McDonald's, I would say, is actually a really strong competitor.
0: I mean, they, they, they give you what they say on the 10.
1: Is yeah. it declining? I don't know the numbers, but is the, is the, I know you're not, you're not trying to slag anyone off here, but is my thesis is those, those businesses are in decline because there's been this new wave of like fresh, and, you know, uh, 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 almost all of our customers
0: also go to McDonald's. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at the frequency of five guys, you know, McDonald's has a huge frequency, you know, eight times more a year, which actually ends up being, you know, people go there a lot. Um, and five guys' frequency is much lower than that. And, and, you know, it's five guys is a treat, you know, it's, it's not something, um, you know, like a a competitor of mine that I think very highly of, you know, Pret's done an amazing job um, with who they are. You can go to Pret pretty much every day. Right. And you know the subscription coffee stuff, you know all that kind of you know stuff works on a on a routine basis. You can't go to Five Guys every day. I mean, I I go to Five Guys, you know, pr- you're pretty close to it, but um, eat a, eat a burger that you know that, that kind of frequently. But um, you know, most of the customers are are, are going you know a couple times a year. Um, so, it, it from a frequency perspective, I think um, you know that's what makes Five Guys a treat and special.
1: So on that point about um the incumbents and what makes them full and scale being one of those key factors. How do you, how do you guard against that? You know, you've got 225 locations, you said, in Europe that you're managing. Yes. Um, how do you stop the 226th location, you know, getting a little bit sloppy and complacent and then serving bad burgers? Yeah, gosh,
0: Steven, that, you know, the, the, that was my primary concern. When,
1: I, you know, I,
0: I was... Charles and I structured the joint venture together. We, you know, we hired the first employees, you know, and, opened the first restaurant and, you know, it had such amazing momentum, you know, it was just kind of this explosion of five guys and it was, you know, really you know, fun to be a part of. And in my, the, the kind of thing that keeps you up is, okay, we're going to grow this business, you know, as fast as we can. Cause we, we know we have something. Um, how are we going to keep the intensity and the energy and the, and the passion that we see in the store in Covent Garden, how do we make sure that every one of these restaurants has that kind of intensity? And that intensity? was
1: the, far, the, the most, that Covent Garden location sold more than any in the world it when, did. It, when it launched.
0: It did. Yeah, by
1: far. I mean, wow. it, it, we, we underwrote it for like a five and a half
0: year payback. It paid back in two years. I mean, it was just a, a phenomenal uh, success. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing that kept me up, a, up at night was, you know, how can we make sure that, you know, we open up in Milton Keynes, we open up in... Um, you know, um, the, the smallest. You know, we're, we're, we're going to open up a store in St. Andrews. You know, how do we make sure that that those stores have people who are absolutely passionate about burgers and fries and taking care of hungry customers? Um, and that I will say has been one of the biggest surprises of my uh, tenure in, in this business is that it's we've actually gotten better. Um, and the key to that is hiring. Um, you know, very talented professionals, and trusting them. Um, and you know, my, my personal style is a very hands-off style of management. I mean, if, if you expect me to micromanage you, I've we've, we've gotten off in you know, is the wrong place. It's the wrong fit. Um, you know, we hire professionals who are really good at what they do and let them do their job. Um, and finding those people who are. Absolutely, operators. I'd I, I say the other bit is that we are very operations led. Um, I was a banker before before this, uh, but I'm fully qualified in a Five Guys kitchen, um, so I can do every task that you see in uh, you know making a bur- making burgers and fries. I'm I'm certified to do that. There are people who are much better at it than I am, could do it much faster than I can. Um, but if you have any credibility in the business, you have to be operationally capable. Um, and hiring operationally capable people who are really good at identifying and qualifying those people who can run a store and bring that passion into a store, that's been the, 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 the secret of the, of, the, of the growth of the business. Um, because having that kind of commitment from the person who's showing up and running a shift that's what that's what makes a
1: restaurant successful Going back to that point about values I, I I would imagine that you know from speaking to actually sports teams and speaking to the players in those successful sports teams whether it's the Manchester United players that, that were under Sir Alex Ferguson for 20 odd years and they, they, they said something to me which was really interesting and I never forgot Rhea Ferdinand said to me he said how many times do you think Sir Alex Ferguson came into the training ground changing room I said I don't know you tell me he goes twice in 26 years and i go why and he goes well the culture was in there so he didn't need to come in Mm. and it spoke and then he told me about when he moved to another football club and in that same training ground changing room they're all bickering and talking about how much they're being paid and like slagging things off Mm. whereas sir alex ferguson never needed to walk into that room because the culture was already in there yeah and it made me think about how you know to keep the specialness of what made you successful at one location when you have 225 those values in that culture must be so strong. So if I'm a, if I'm starting at five guys in a management position today, what are you saying to me to turn me into a five guys disciple? Well, I guess the, we do actually have values
0: that we identify with inside the business and hiring right is essential. I mean, there's so many talented food and beverage professionals who are really good at their job, but who are a terrible fit for us. Um, and so being able to find those human beings who work in a Five Guys. So a general manager works in the restaurant with customers, with crew, making burgers and fries, taking resolving problems and issues. There's not a laptop job in a, in a, in a Five Guys. Um, so someone who's looking for kind of you know, kind of ice skate above things and, you know, not really getting your hands dirty, that's not the right fit for us. So I guess the first thing we did was, you know, when we opened up, nobody knew who five guys were. So we had to beg people to work for us. Um, and of course that, that's always a, a, a mistake. Um, you, we hired a lot of the wrong people and you have a lot of churn early on trying to find what that right fit is. Um, and so I remember it was a really important decision we made where, where essentially we're essentially going to invert the equation and we said, you know, five guys is a really hard job, and it's, it's probably not for you. And then, kind of, be quiet, and look for the look for the the, the woman or the guy who kind of raised their hand and said, that kind of sounds good to me. Um, and so having the kind of negative sell on working at Five Guys, I think was a really important distinction that we made. But once you get into Five Guys, we have five values that that we build our business on. Um, And that's integrity. Um, you, You can't once you lose your integrity, everything else is easy. Um, so having um, integrity in how you lead, um, being competitive um, and, you know, wanting to win and going after um, the business, being enthusiastic, having passion and positivity and looking for the solution, um, family oriented, taking care of people, having a sense about, you um, human beings who are on your crew and the hungry people who are coming into your store and treating them like family, then getting it done. Um, Not overcomplicating it. Our business is, you know, our menu simple, our business is simple, but it's really hard. Um, But making sure that you have a very much results-oriented focus as a manager. And we actually train and teach those values. And when you look at the pandemic and how five guys comparatively surfed through the pandemic, it was because we Taught those values, and we all absorbed those values into how we thought. And then, when you know you had to be agile and, and nimble and flexible, you knew what what the what the objective of the business was, and all the managers just beautifully adjusted their business to reflect the opportunities that they could take.
1: How um, how do you go about instilling those values in team members um, beyond? beyond the day when they're hired? Is there is there certain things you're doing every quarter? Is there daily emails? Like what is what are the, the touch points where you're using them as an opportunity to say this is who we are, by the way? Yeah, well, I think the first thing um, was
0: a, a, a card from a deck that you, that you played was we, we launched an app. Um, right, like within a, a week of the pandemic falling. we had been planning to have an, a, a, an employee-oriented app. Um, but we launched the app um, right, when the pandemic struck, we were like, we have to be able to communicate because we were, none of us knew what was happening and being able to be in direct touch with every human being in the business was such a, um, a great tool. Um, and we immediately had like massive down, I mean it, it was it was universally kind of accepted as a way to communicate with inside the company um, and it allowed so I, I was recording something pretty much every day to say you know here's what's going on here's what the rules are here's why it's going to be safe to come to work here's how we're going to protect you and your family and the crew and and the customers in this environment um, and being able to have that direct line of communication to the whole company was really powerful it kind of cut through a lot of the the fear and um, and uncertainty about it one um, two is that we 've now we're now investing massively in learning and development um, we seventy five percent of our managers are promoted internally um, so these are people who have joined us we have people who have joined us crew and gone on to be district managers area managers now so that kind of career opportunity um, is fantastic so if you're ambitious if you're have you know career goals come to five guys because we're growing and we're, we need your talent to, to grow the business so being able to First of all we know that that internal development is kind of the best path to um, to, to growing inside of five guys and having new leaders for all the, the restaurants that we're opening we've got to invest in the young people who are joining five guys um, and teaching them not just burgers and fries but how to manage how to manage people um, you know there's so many different kinds of people that it takes to make a restaurant work how you communicate with one crew member may be very different from how you communicate and motivate with another one. And giving our managers tools for how to connect with all different kinds of people um, who work for them is,
1: you know, an important investment that we make. Before the pandemic happened, um, I, I think I said a lot on this, in this podcast, and just generally that my single biggest learning, being a young entrepreneur, starting in business, and then making all the mistakes, and then getting a little bit more mature was the importance of talent. And I always say that, by definition of the word company. The definition of the word company means group of people mm-hmm. it took me too long to figure that out because when i started i was 20 years old I, you know you just hire your mate here Well, 18 years old i started my first companies hired you know my, my friend here i met someone at a rap event i was like you can be my marketing director went into prada met another guy i was like you can be the head of our accounts it was just that kind of whoever was willing right right great people exactly probably who i needed at that phase but for the next phase you need to um I learned that you need a different caliber of person. And really, I should have been a bit more ambitious from the jump, if I'm being completely honest. Mm. Um, and so now I reflect on it and think, damn, in fact, every company is just a recruitment business mm. at its core. Like, mm. if I had hired Steve Jobs, I would have <laughs> and bound them with the right culture and values. Yes. I would have had an apple, <laughs> right? Yes. I would have made an apple. Yeah. How important do you think it is um, to hire the best people? And how how do you go about that? What is the... The strategy. Yeah, well, first of all, I think we had the
0: benefit of seeing the success of five guys in the U.S. So Charles and I had a conviction that even before we opened the first store, of course, we were nervous when we opened it, but that we, we thought we had a tiger by the tail because we thought the product was fantastic. Um, so we were able to assemble people who were proven to be really good at what they did from the outset and kind of like across the board in the senior management team. So Julie Spear, who's my head of operations, unbelievable. We, we, we wouldn't be where we are without her. Richard Collier, who's head of property. I mean, he opened up 2,400 stores for car Farm warehouse all across Europe, really ex- established professional. Those two are, were essential. We would never be where we are without those two individuals, but then kind of driving that all the way down to the, you know, the, 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 the first crew person who you hire in a, in a new, in a, for a new store, hugely important because they're actually going to be making the burger and fry for, for the customer who walks in there. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's probably an urban myth, but the Shackleton story about, you know, putting an ad in the paper for his, you know, South, uh, South Pole expedition, you know, it's going to be dangerous and risky. We'll probably, you know, we may not come back alive, but if we do, there'll be glory. That kind of negative sell um, I think was a critical point for us where, you know, five guys is a really hard job, huge expectation, physically demanding job. Um, it's not for everybody. And, and you know, stating that being confident enough to say – Look, you know, you're a very talented human, you know, professional in food and beverage, but you're just not the right fit for us. And being the confidence to say no in that regard, that was hard. But I think that was a real turning point um, in the business for us.
1: What about firing people?
0: (sighs) It's the worst part of the business. Um, Really hard. You know, I mean, it's, um, you know... If, if, you, if you get it wrong, it's so painful. Um, you know, these are people who you know, who are human beings. Um, and if the job's either outgrown them um, or they were the wrong cultural fit, um, it's really, obviously it's hard for them, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, deb- it's really, it's, it's a soul crushing moment, um, which makes it that much more important to hire right in the interview for culture. You know, when, but when, when an interview finally gets to my level, I am 100% focused on culture. I mean, the, the, the whole qualification of their professional skills is, has been addressed by the time they get to me. And I am solely focused on, are you a good cultural fit? Um, are you the kind of person who, you know, obviously is good at what you do, but are you gonna be, when, when we're in the trenches and when the, the chips are down and we have to make the hard calls, are you gonna value the, the same things that I will and the, that we do as a company? Um, to make
1: your decision, what is your philosophy though for, for moving people on? you have a clear philosophy around hiring people. What is the philosophy for moving people on because i 've made this is again one of my other biggest mistakes in my professional career was allowing people who are clearly not right fit to kind of overstay their their, uh, journey with my company. Hmm. And I, I just wish sometimes that I had, cause the, the net damage of that, when you, your gut tells you this isn't, this is not the right person, yeah. but maybe for whatever reasons, emotional reasons, you don't act fast enough is yeah. so severe. Yeah. We, you know, I mean, I, I
0: first of all, I, th- I think, I think you can't, you have to make the decision that's best for the business. Um, and in, th- and, and realizing that this business is bigger than any of us, um, including me, um, you know, I, I can be, I'm, I'm hired and fired by by my board. Um, you know, Charles and the Morels can decide any day that I'm not the right guy to lead the business going forward. And certainly at the executive level, to me, my expectation is that everyone should have that expectation. It's a privilege to have the jobs that we do. It's not a right. Um, and if, if, there's a, if there's a tough decision to be made, uh, making it clearly, cleanly, um, and directly, is the best thing. There's no reason to be um, negative about it. You have to be, but you do have to be very direct about it. Um, And quick? um, Quick is really important in in, in my book. You know, there is a bit of a difference between the UK and the US. Um, You know, the US has a, um, favors that quick side yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah. And I think I probably fall into that category. And that yeah. can be a challenge in an environment where there's like, you know, what about a six month garden leave? And, you know, I'm yeah. like, what is it? I'm not sure what a garden. leave. I went for, the other <laughs> way. So I
1: launched a business here. Then we took it to America and I'm like, what two week notice period. <laughs> Everyone has a two week notice. So what the hell is this?
0: Yeah. And it's really just a box and, you know, please, yeah. you probably should leave now
1: uh, in America more
0: than, more than not. It, it feels like, um, but, but I think once you've made that decision, it's, you can't move soon enough um, because, and it's rare that someone is, that you would consider to say, I really don't think they're right for the job and that that person kind of recovers to being a superstar, right? That Mm. almost never happens. So if, if you do have that I'm not sure that, I'm not sure this person's right for the business, either from a talent perspective or from a cultural fit perspective, you know, it's probably, I mean, I think you need to listen to that urge because it's probably right. And actually it's a favor to that human being as well, um, because they're going to, whether it's talent or if it's, um, you know, a cultural fit there may be a fantastic opportunity elsewhere for them. And all you're doing is holding them in a, you're holding them back professionally because they're never going to fly in your organization, but they might in another court, in another culture. So I know it never feels like that um, to say, you know, look, I'm doing you a favor by, you know, telling you that, you, you know, not to work here anymore. Um, but if you know someone's not going to be uh, successful in your business, it, it is best for everybody to do that quickly
1: and um, as soon as you can, actually. How important have you realized it to be in the five guys business and for the success of the five guys brand to have a real high attention to detail and to sweat the small stuff? Because a lot of businesses don't sweat the small stuff. Hmm. They kind of see it as being petty or not mattering and they kind of focus more on like the big decisions they make. Hmm. But, you know, what's your sort of philosophy towards the small stuff? Um, Well, first of all, I think
0: being operationally focused is something that defines your business. Um, And for us, so our details are the standards for cooking burgers and fries, and you can never focus on that enough. Um, And if you're not actually cooking burgers and fries, you better be supporting someone who is in the business. So that that kind of um, horrible disconnection that you can sometimes have of a head office People who call it the head office, we call it the back office. um, From the actual business, um, is is you know to me is the death knell for uh, you know for for certainly for a food and beverage business. Um, So having that connectivity to the detail of um, of the the purpose of our business, which is feeding hungry customers, uh, is is to me is essential. Um, Now, from a detail perspective. I don't want to get into the details of my IT guy or my marketing team or the property team. You know, I've hired people who are fantastic at that. And, and I don't want to be into the details. I can't be into the details of each of those professional expertise that you hire for. You have to
1: hire talent and let them do their um, their professional expertise. But how do you check that, you know, if something, say something in one of your stores and say like, we, we mentioned Milton Keynes, so let's just keep focusing on that. Um, in Milton Keynes, if standards have dropped because of the leadership there, how yeah. are you checking that those standards are staying high? Yeah, so we mystery shop every store twice a week. Okay. Uh, and, and we
0: put the money that we would typically, that other brands would spend on advertising, we spend an incentive compensation for crew. So we pay out millions and millions of pounds of incentive compensation to crew to be the, to be the best of the best. Um, and we grade so the mystery shop looks like 120 points of what of what's important from a burgers and fries perspective, from a cleanliness perspective, from a customer service perspective, um, and the top rated um, shops that have um, that perform get paid incentive compensation, meaningful incentive compensation. Um, so I- I'd say that. Com- back to the competitiveness. Mm. Everybody wants to get paid. Everybody wants to compete for that excellence and to be recognized for that. Um, so mystery shopping, I think, is a, is a fantastic way of um, ensuring that we're all focused on the same thing.
1: And if you find a location is continually ranking at the bottom of that mystery shopping scoreboard, what what, what are the next steps of action?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the first question is in-store leadership. You know, who's, who's leading the store? Are they the right person? Do they have the right orientation? Do they have the right values? Um, are, they, are they trained enough to, to do their job well? Um, so, um, you know, we, we have a very th- flat organization where you go from general manager to district manager, area manager, and then, you know, basically the top of the business. Um, so it's, it's pretty, pretty quick. Um, and, and I do, um, what's called a mid-year review. Um, I'm actually missing a couple to be on your, uh, oh, on you. your, on your podcast today. <laughs> uh, uh, but we, we have every GM stand and present their stores performance once a year in June, July, August in that time frame. Um, and so I get a view of the in-store leadership. You know, who is that human being who's in charge of that store? What do they have to say about the results that they've delivered, both from a financial perspective, most of all, from a, perform- from a customer service perspective and a quality perspective? So you kind of get a direct view into who
1: is that human being who's running the store. One of the things that's happened over the last couple of years is this, this pandemic. It's been this very tectonic shift um, in many industries, but there, there are a few industries that have been affected more than like the high street and um, retail and food and beverage. There's been real tectonic shifts in technology and footfall and all of these things. Um, as the CEO of a business that's gone through such chaos, how do you maintain your own personal calm within all of that chaos? Because it is just never ending, and we were talking before we start recording. You've gone from a pandemic to inflation issues to this sort of great resignation and a you know talent crisis, as they're talking about all of these things happening at once. You're a human being mm. in the heart of that. How do you enjoy your life and and keep calm and you know <laughs> not annoy your partner or whatever?
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure I do all those things. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure I, I don't keep calm all the time. Um, and that's okay. Um, you know, I think just as we in the business try to keep things simple, um, focus on burgers and fries, um, I think there's keeping focused on just a few things and picking the couple of dials that, that will determine whether you survive, whether you live or, or die, um, and whether you win or lose. Um, and hopefully picking those right things to focus on, um, I think is the way I try and, and and manage myself as a CEO, um, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, the the moments that I consider to be the most intense and the most rewarding as a as a leader um, are the human ones, where because I'm CEO, um, people have to explain what's going on in their lives, um, and those moments are just rich gold for me as a human being, where someone comes to me and says, you know, I have, I've got a parent who's suffering from dementia. I have to, you know, have to spend some time looking after that. And, um, or, you know, I, have I've, I've had a loss and I've got to figure out, um, you know, how to manage that, that loss. And, and, and those human connection points are, um, are, and, and actually that kind of feeds back into our family value, um, you know, where we, and, and as a CEO, I have my, a, a smaller direct report community that I have to take care of those human beings. And, I, and my, my view is that if I can take care of those human beings, they'll, they'll do their job and take care of, of their human beings. So recognizing that it's not, you know, it's not all dollars and uh, pounds and, and pence, it's not all um, you know, KPIs that you can manage, it's not quarterly earnings, it's the human beings. And if, and if you focus on them, Um, particularly on the vulnerable moments when they're most um, upset, when they're most um, at risk Um, and being able to say, yeah, you know, take a week, take them. you know, what you need as a human being is important for the business because I need you, I need your professional acumen, but I need it focused. So being being sure that they're all right in those moments, I think is, uh, um, gives me the satisfaction that I'm looking for from the job of of, of chief exec, um, my dad was a psychiatrist, um, and you know was obviously clearly focused on mental health and well being, and you know from a chemical perspective, um, and you know realizing that whatever whatever chemical, I mean, obviously I'm sure he did important work in that regard, um, but you can, at work, you have the ability to either build up or tear down someone's mental health. And being able to provide an environment where someone's mental health is protected and um, perhaps even tended to, um, I think is a is a powerful um, it's a powerful thing for me as a as a leader. And and, I, and, I, and hope what and what I see is that that approach carrying out throughout the business. So that style of leadership um, is you know is is contagious as a value in the business. So you know. If, if someone's in distress um, in in a crew um, you know the, the the shift will suffer, and you have to take care of that person who's um, in distress um, and um, understand them and and see what it takes to build them back up and to provide them the support and security to to be effective in their job. Um, what about your mental health? When was your hardest time my hardest time
1: in, in your five guys' journey
0: yeah well um, I, was, uh, I went through a very painful divorce um, and uh, went through something called leave to remove, which I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Um, it's the, essentially it's the right to have your children taken out of the country. So I had uh, two young children um, who, um, w- the court system approved leave to remove, um, which allowed my ex to, to take uh, my kids back to America. Um, which was um, incredibly painful, um, and my whole um, view of myself, my definition of who I was, um, changed. I thought I thought of myself as a, a you know a great partner, good husband, good father, devoted father. Um, you know, I was in politics back in America, um, was involved in my community and a church leader and um, and businessman, and I thought you know all these things are who I am, and essentially. All of that was, uh, you know, a, a, a quite a large bonfire of vanities, um, and that was a real dark, dark moment for me. Um, and there were there were days when Five Guys was the one thing in my life that was stable and that I could hold on to, and that really pulled me through um, a very difficult, dark time uh, personally.
1: How long did that, that process last? Um, I, that's
0: part of the UK challenge. It took years. Um, you know, better part of two years um, we're in that process. Um, and then um, you know, trying to um, rebuild those relationships. And thankfully I'm in a, a, an amazing place with my kids now um, and have um, you know, accepted that, they, that, that we have had a more adult relationship prematurely. Um, but now that they're both at university um, it feels more normal um, now, and um, those are hard-fought, hard, hard won, recast relationships, um, which you know were really important, are important to me. Um, but was I was the thought that they were at risk was um, caused just enormous anxiety, and and living with that kind of anxiety on the personal side, having a having a place where um, you know, things were more, um, predictable was, um, and being able to work in that way and provide for them, um, was, uh, you know, a, a real, um, yeah, really helped me through.
1: When your kids are essentially taken away to another country and you, you've got this huge responsibility of running this big business, hmm. how do how does that impact your ability to show up every day professionally? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, was, it, was,
0: it was really complex for me because I had a non-compete back in the US for the business that I had sold. So I couldn't just relocate back to America and do my job. Um, so it felt like a, a huge catch-22 because I had these court-ordered financial obligations, and the
1: only way that I could really fulfill them was to keep doing my job here. Um, so court ordered financial obligations is in the separation costs and stuff that you have to pay to your partner. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so it, it felt like a catch 22. They were allowed to leave, but I had to provide for them. So I had to stay. so it was, it, it felt like a, um, kind of a indentured servanthood for a bit, but, um, you know, being able to, um, to focus on, um, on a, on the important job that I had actually was enormously relieving because I knew that for, you know, Ten hours a day, you know, twelve hours a day, whatever, it, whatever it ended up being, that I could actually do something productive that I knew I was good at, um, that made a difference for them, um, and that um, was it. it the, the the anxiety of, of being separated, I, I could set aside for a few, you know, for those hours in a day, and that was really helpful. Um, it, it, it it could have absor- just kind of overwhelmed me. Um, but work was able to. Um, it was. It was a place where I could where I could escape from that.
1: Did you see uh, uh, your motivation fluctuate often? When we have these like pretty substantial life events, there's an initial period where getting out of bed in the morning is a little bit more difficult. It's almost like someone has messed with your why, hmm. your reason to get out of bed and your sense of purpose. Yeah. So you almost have to. I've I've learned from my own experiences that you have to spend a little bit of time. You're almost faking it. Mm. To get to get the drive back, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, of course, no. Well, you know, I told you I got up at five
0: a.m. when I was a kid and practiced violin for an hour before before uh, school. And what I mean, I, I was never a great musician, but what I did find was that if you did something every day, you actually could get better at it, maybe even more than competent. Um, and I think it was something like that that just in me, you know, said you know get out of bed, do the next, do the next thing. Um, and something, things will change. You will, I I called a friend of mine who'd been through a a similar, um, situation. Um, and he said, you know, just keep showing up, you know, you know, texting my son every day, calling, you know, every day, um, being as present as I possibly could. Um, and you know, obviously it's imperfect. Um, and it's deeply upsetting, I'm sure to them as well as, as well as to me. Um, but doing as much as you possibly can, uh, to be available and in touch. Um, and, and then you just have to trust, um, trust something that it'll be okay.
1: Trust something. is in just trust
0: life that it will. No, I mean, you know, I, I now we're getting very personal Stephen. Mm. but, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I believe in a higher power. Um, I, I don't, I don't, Pretend to understand it, um, but I think there's something much more powerful than I am in the world. Um, and what what I will say is is that it helped me to see the world in two camps. One are things that I can control, um, and some things that I absolutely can't control. Um, and if you spend, if you allocate your mental um, health and your time on the things that you can't control. Um, you can drive yourself to distraction and eventually madness. Um, So being able to focus on the things that you can control um, and, and, and realizing that that's your job. Um, you know, your job as a human is to do the things that you can control. And if if you, if you, you know, it's just, it's just arrogance and, and um, ignorance to, to focus on the things that you can't control. Um, And so identify those, identifying those two camps and being at peace with that, accepting that you can't, some things you can't control, that's really hard, Um, but it's hugely important.
1: Yeah. I I was at this festival this weekend and there was a i I did one-on-one meetings with lots of people that were in the audience for three hours and i found myself being asked over and over again how to deal with exactly that which is when chaos arrives in our lives what to do on that day and people had me recording these voice notes for them for that day so when that day comes they just wanted to be able to play it and what you said there is exactly what i said which is there are a small list of things you can control and on that tough day make a promise to me that you'll spend 100% of your mental energy focusing only on those things. Because mm. can't. Because obviously yesterday, focusing too much on that tends to lead to depression, as I think the Lu Sao, the philosopher says, focusing too much on tomorrow. And the things that are yet to be in your control will also cause a lot of anxiety. So really focusing in on today, I think, is just phenomenal advice in terms of, um, A, it's the thing that's most conducive with a successful outcome. But B, it's also the thing that's most conducive with having a healthy mental State in total chaos. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think the other thing is that realizing that
0: our—I pr- believe our purpose in life is human connection. Um, I think that's why we're here. I think we're we're made to to connect. And sometimes it's, you know, we're colliding, you know, and, and more than connecting, but but figuring out how to connect with other human beings. And I will say, you know, that was the making of me as uh, uh, the, in being able to to. You know, when, when someone comes into my office and says, "You know, I, I've I've lost my I've lost my partner," you know, they they passed away, you know, you know, way before their time, you know, being able to connect with that person in that moment of loss is hugely valuable as a company, um, but hugely meaningful to me as a human being. Um, and and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I if I hadn't been through the loss that I, that I had experienced. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those things where you end up being grateful for the, the most upsetting things that happen in your life.
1: Um, because I think they're the making of you in many ways, because of what you said at the start of this conversation about that importance of feeling like you belonged. And, all, and that's so, it's so evident that that is, um, much of the reason you've also been successful Is you're, you, you mean, even from this short conversation we've had, you strike me as a very empathetic person who's able to connect with others. Um, that moment, must have been presumably even more difficult because mm. your sense of belonging in that moment was, mm. was taken from you to some degree. Mm. The family unit, right? No, for sure. That was, that was, a, yeah, that was a defining moment. Um, but now, you know, the thing
0: about, about Five Guys is that you know, we have these 8,600 people who get up every morning and have this shared vision mission to make great burgers and fries for hungry customers. Um, and I get to be a part of that. And you know I get to be a part of this larger community that that, that has this in that, and, and the, you know winning in business feels fantastic right i mean it, it's a real it's a real high it's a it's a um, it, it, it's a drug and it's an addiction and being a part of a community that has that, that, that's accomplishing this this Thing. You know, we were the, we were the eighth fastest growing business, uh, in 2016, I think in the UK and the fastest growing food and beverage business. And even with that, we never met a budget that I had made. So, mm. you know, we were, you know, we, we were fastest, but, you know, still behind by, by, by my mind. And, um, but being it being a part of this community that shares our, our values and that are all working towards this is, is enormously satisfying. And, um, and yeah, fill something that, that, you know, has has always been empty.
1: Some days as CEOs, we, maybe we're tired or, you know, we're in a bad mood or something's off. Um, we can sometimes not show up as our best selves. And sometimes when, when that happens with me, I, I regret it. So I'll, I'll go home and think, oh, I just wish I'd, I wish I'd handled that situation differently. Do you, do, does that happen to you a lot where you think, oh, fuck, I wish I'd. Been in a better mood, or I'd slept more today, or something.
0: Yeah, Julie tells me when. Uh, <laughs>
1: Who's Julie? <Judy? laughs> Julie, my head of ops. She comes <laughs> in
0: and says, "Yeah, you really fucked up that meeting. That oh, was really? that, that, was, yeah, that was, um, But 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 actually, having um, having somebody who um, you know t- to me the 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 one of the worst things that can happen are these um, you know Emperor has no clothes, where you know where the where the where the where the the, the most important powerful person in a business has blind spots that you know, everybody knows about and somehow you, you know, you work around. Um, And and that's just hugely dangerous as a business. Um, And having people who can come into your office and go, John, that that was, you know, that comment was just way out of line or really unhelpful. You know, you you now have people thinking like this, is that what you wanted? Um, So people who can confront power with truth. And you know, to me, that, that kind of culture is hugely important to a company um, because you can go so wrong with the emperor has no clothes and people thinking, God, we know this, but we just can't tell them to that person. How you do know? you cultivate that?
1: Because I imagine a lot of CEOs and a lot of team members that work for a CEO think, oh, there's no way I could give my CEO and tell him that was wrong or he shouldn't have said that How, well, or she shouldn't have said that. I think
0: publicly owning your shit um, is, is really, is really helpful, um, in that way, you know, so, so showing up at the next meeting and go, Hey, you know what? I said this to the last meeting and that was just really wrong. It was off. And, and, you know, I was, I was off my game or, you know, I didn't think it through and, you know, and it should be the opposite. It should be the opposite of that. Um, and, and, you know, showing that you can respond to that kind of challenge. I think is 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 important as a, as a leader, and then you give everybody else permission to do the same thing. You know, I mean, you can change your mind. You're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to be wrong as a as a fallible human being too.
1: Um, and and confessing that it's powerful. That confession there, when I heard when I heard that example, what it actually says to me as well is that as a CEO, you care more about the correct answer not being right. So that that might be confusing when, as because of the way I said that when you stand in front of your team members and say, do you know what? In hindsight, I actually got that really wrong and I, I fucked up. What you're actually saying is, my number one thing as John is to, be, is to find the right answer, not for me to be correct. Yeah. And, it's, like, and it's, a really, it's really refreshing to hear that you're in search of truth and the correct answer, not in search of validating your own, um, your own opinions and yourself, which, as you say, creates that culture of humility where hopefully others around them will go... I'm also wrong in this situation. Exactly, well, business shouldn't be an homage
0: to an in individual, right? I mean, you, you know, we have, we're about perfect burgers and fries, hungry customers, clean restaurants, customer service, and that's, that's really simple. I mean, it's not a, um, and, and, if, and if, if any of us isn't the right human being to fill the function that we're supposed to be performing, you know, we all should raise our hand and say, you know, it's probably not me anymore.
1: How do people give, um, do you have a a system in which people at Five Guys could give, that are working there in the team, could give critical feedback safely? Yeah, so, I mean, we we do have
0: kind of like the scheduled uh, annual conversations. Um, I didn't often. Uh, You know, it was kind of in my, you know, in in my don't micromanage, um, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, people will come to me if they, you know, if they need to. And Mm -hmm. I think that that probably was wrong. Um, And, you know, saying... Look, we're going to have a dedicated time and, and really, you know, I don't, I don't like fill out a form where, you know, so you did well in this and poorly in that, you know, we don't, I don't do that, you know. Um, but I sit and say, you know, let's talk about what worked and what didn't both from, you know, chance for you to tell me what didn't, didn't work, but also for us to talk about what didn't go right, you know, and, and worked, you know, this year for you. Um, and, you know, what do we do to fix that? You know, how do we, how do we make it better? Um, so I think having a set time to talk about that actually is a good idea. And I've, I've taken that up relu- somewhat reluctantly, but now um, enthusiastically.
1: You, you, much of this conversation is centered around um, Five Guys' sort of central philosophy of really, really caring about the customer. And you, you talked a little bit about how each store has mystery shoppers that come in and, and make sure those standards are maintained. Um, is your objective now to push the standards up even further? Or is it to maintain the standards? No I, I, I well well first of all I, I think
0: you know we, I'm responsible for Germany, France Spain Portugal UK and in each market has a little different national temperament mm-hmm. and figuring out what constitutes good customer service is a is a bit of a nuanced thing in each,
1: Given market, give me an example of the difference.
0: Um, you know, d- does does someone want to be checked back on? You know, so, so they you know if someone's sitting there eating their food. You know, and they're kind of like one of the things we talk about is first mover advantage. You should have your head on a swivel, looking around for people who are looking for a solution to a problem with their meal. Um, and you, you, I'm sure you've had that you know we're like you know yeah, I'd like some you know, like, like, like some extra topping or sauce Cat or topic. something yeah. and you can't get anybody's attention and so teaching someone how to how to be in tune with a customer who's looking for help. And that's very culturally uh,
1: dependent. Um, the,
0: someone can communicate that very differently um, in, you know, in, d- in the different
1: markets. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about because I had that exact problem recently was I was in a restaurant, it was very busy. And I feel like I spent 15 minutes like trying to get someone's attention to try yes. and get some ketchup. Yes, um, The food goes cold. I'm like, you know, and then I start eating it by the time they've come. But you really
0: wanted that ketchup, yeah. right? It's like the really. And it's
1: gone before, then I asked for the ketchup and I've eaten it before the ketchup. So I just have a bowl of ketchup and no food. <laughs> Um, and I was thinking I was sat there in this restaurant in in Spain a week ago, and I was thinking, if they just had an iPad on the table, I could have pressed a button and they would have known and they would have and it would have helped them because i 'm sure they want to help me, they just weren 't aware yeah, and I would have got helped faster. Have you not considered implementing more technology in and in the place of um, human beings? That sounds pretty brutal, but it 's just the truth. No, I mean, technology is part of the solution. It's certainly, I mean, and actually probably your
0: phone is already there mm-hmm. and, and there's gotta be a way to make your, you know, this communication tool that you already have in your hand hooked up to an effective way inside the restaurant. Now, more and more young people expect technology to be part of their journey um, and their securing of the things that they want and need. But there are also people who are, you know, completely opposed to that. Um, you know, we are, we are a very analog brand in that sense. Um, I think that there's more openness to technology than there ever has been before. So we did curbside service, um, which essentially is like reverse Uber, where we can kind of track your car as it approaches and we can prepare your food as we see the countdown for your arrival. And so the, the, the kind of perfect scenario, which we often get is where you drive up and the fries have just come out of the, the fryer and shaken and, salted and ready to go. And, and it kind of like comes together beautifully at the, at the right moment. So the, you absolutely, we should use technology to meet the customer's needs and to address those people who want to, who prefer technology to, and also we can't be everywhere and be perfect and every, mm. you know, in terms in responsive. So yes, technology will be a part of that interaction going forward.
1: It's somewhat caught between two generations. I imagine because I was in Nando's the other day and the first time they've Told me, oh, you can just order from the QR code stuck on the table, right. and I imagine my my dad might not like that experience. Yep, for me it was convenient. I say, like, oh, perfect, great, I don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> Typical, yeah. you know, millennial Gen Zer. But well, and, and, and we
0: should be able to adapt for the for the customer um, because they're and they're human beings who who ab, who actually view customer service as not having to speak, right? I really just want to stay in my own world and, and you know, press a button and, and, and get exactly
1: what I want. Um, and you know, we should be responsive to that. How much do you think the, the structure and the way that the business, the foundations of the business in terms of it being a joint venture with the Morales as opposed to a franchise and generally the philosophy towards what you're building and how long that sort of time horizon is has impacted the product and therefore the customer and therefore the success of the company?
0: Well, I mean, of course my experience is incredibly biased because all I've ever known is the company owned model. Um, And so the franchise model is genius and it really works and there's a power, power to it and you can become really strong as a franchise and franchised business, um, it's really worked well for us. Um, you know, we wrote. You know, whenever you whenever you form a company and whenever you form a joint venture, you kind of have all these rules and you know governance and how to make decisions and broke. We, we've never even referred to it once over the past twelve years. Um, so you know, the having nothing but building a profitable business has been fantastic for me as a chief exec because I knew that my shareholders were completely aligned um, and we would never have made the decisions that we did, particularly from a property perspective, um, without being a joint venture. As a franchisee, you wouldn't have paid the premium to be to buy a 10,000 square foot property on the Champs Elysees in between the Louis Vuitton corporate headquarter and the Abercrombie & Fitch global flagship store. Um, and there's five guys. It's amazing. You know, it's, 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 it's the, probably the most high profile visible five guys apart from the one that's in the dubai mall um, mm-hmm. so th- that property strategy was definitely influenced by the structure of the deal, um, taking those high you know high investment property uh, decisions to
1: reposition the brand um, uh, you know as, as premium as we could get it and it's still running like a family business at its core yeah' it's still making those very value focused decisions as opposed to making decisions for the stock market or...
0: The quarterly earnings report is not a pressure for me at all. Um, you know, the, the the family meets every Tuesday and talks about the, the future of the business. I meet with Charles on a monthly basis um, to review the property and the pricing and the positioning of the brand. Um, and those conversations would be different with a different structure for sure.
1: Because one of the things you said is, I don't have a time horizon, which means you're not trying to build a business for three years and then jump ship and get out. So you said, I don't have a time horizon, I'm going, which allows you to build a really great business. For the long term, yeah. And that's what I'm, I'm kind of getting at because there'll be business owners listening to this that may be thinking, oh, I'll build for two years, then I'll sell it, or I'll build for three years and I'll sell it. But what you alluded to there is that you'll create a much better business if you remove that time horizon. It has been for us, Um, you know, and obviously I've
0: I've been involved in private equity investments. I I mean, there certainly is a place for that. Um, And and I'm not saying you can't be successful in those environments. It's really worked for us to be able to focus on, you know, an indefinite time horizon and doing the right thing today. I mean, ultimately— private equity wants you to do the right thing today. Um, and whether it plays out next month, next week, next quarter, I think the, the, sometimes the interpretation of the urgency of the investment window can be misinterpreted to make urgent decisions rather than the right decisions. And I think it's up to, this, to some degree, it's up to the chief exec to say, wait a minute, you're, you're all focused on the wrong thing just right now. We could do this, which is gonna make more quarterly earnings next quarter and I'll make my budget. But the right decision is to invest in the medium term, long term, and, and here's why. So I think, it's, I, I think there is a lot of pressure, but to some degree, it's, it's that, that position of, of chief exec where you need to say, wait a minute, that's the wrong, wrong business decision. And we can do, build a better business, be more successful by thinking not about next quarter what's the biggest threat to five guys biggest threat to five guys um, I think losing focus on the the basics of burgers and fries thinking that we're something other than being burgers and fries um, you know that laser focused on making the best burger you could for your mom I mean that has got to be at the center of you know of, of who we are and what we're about treating each other like family um, and Realizing that it's the human beings who are in the store fundamentally that 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 to me was the biggest inversion from banking. Um, banking was it felt like to me a very um, prima donna ish business where um, very individual um, accomplishment and you could get ultimately get paid by moving from one shop to another and taking credit for work you might not have been 100% responsible for. Um, and this business, it's all about reflecting any glory that comes to the business, to the people who are actually making the burgers and fries, taking care of the business. And to me, we've, whenever we,
1: if we were to ever lose focus on burgers and fries, that would be the end of the business. On a personal level then, what, is, what makes you happy? Outside of the professional stuff, outside of Five Guys, what, what, is it, what are the ingredients that make you happy? Um, it's the connection stuff. Um, the painful, gritty, vulnerable connection stuff.
0: Um, and, painful. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, like I tell my kids now, you know, I mean, I hope that I'm the guy that you call when something's gone wrong. Um, you know, it's great, listen, it's great to get the calls that you got good grades and that you, you know, you got the job you wanted and things are going well, you got a promotion, you know, that's wonderful. But I want to be, I want to be the call when something, you know, some, when something goes wrong, when someone breaks up with you and, you know, you don't, you're, you know, your job doesn't go the way you want to want it to go. You know, to me, that connectivity at the vulnerable
1: place is, is the currency that is most precious to me. It's much of the reason why we started this podcast, to be honest, because, which, you know, sometimes being ceo much of it is about well i used to think it was about being seen as being perfect and strong and like you never had any personal issues yourself i think that's probably what i what i learned about being a ceo and a leader it was always you know you've got to be um uh rock solid but um m- m- the reason why this podcast was called the diary of a CEO is because ceos are humans too Successful people are humans too, and it turns out they have all the same bullshit and problems and pain and personal stuff that everyone else has mm. in their lives. And you, you've talked about much of that today. If you're, if you're, if you're, and this is a question I've asked a few of my guests recently. Just, I really enjoy the, asking the question, but it's there's somewhat of a pun in it, I guess. In this case, um, if your, if your happiness is a, a recipe consisting of a series of ingredients in different quantities, like you know, the Five Guys fries just being three ingredients what would be what are those ingredients and is there anything missing well i think vulnerability
0: is the you know probably the biggest new ingredient that i've had to mix into into my life had um, to yeah i mean I, you know i think i think the being separated from my kids forced a you know forced me to relook re- at everything um, and i think also um, realizing that I have massive blind sides that I don't see um, and that I, I have convictions about the way I think and my intentions. But actually there's a huge sea of unconscious motivations that, I, that I'm unaware of and purposefully so, right? We, we, we build our, our mental defense constructs to deny the unconscious motivations but that actually drive us. Um, and that 's what my, my my partners helped me to see that you know that, that there 's so much that I, you know I think i 'm doing something because i 'm trying to be generous and and actually it 's it's because i 'm working out some anger <laughs> and mm-hmm. and i don 't want to admit that you know I, I want to be the good guy right um, mm-hmm. and and being able to see that shadow side of yourself and to acknowledge that and to and to even embrace that and to say it 's okay that 's part of me um, and you know yeah. that 's really um, that's been the hardest bit for me in the past couple of years, but um, I think probably the most um, the most valuable.
1: What did you find in the shadows?
0: Oh, gosh, all the stuff you don't want to see about yourself that you're selfish, that you're um, that you. I, I think you know. I grew up thinking that I couldn't express. Negative emotions. You know, I couldn't be angry. I couldn't, you know, I, and and but that goes. I mean, of course, you get angry. All human beings do. But and that goes somewhere. <laughs> and if you if you stuff it somewhere, it comes out in the worst ways at people that you love and care about, um, and in ways that you're probably that I'm not even aware of. Um, so, feeling that that it's okay to to be angry um, is probably. You know the hardest thing for for me. I'm 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 just starting to work on that. I don't pretend That's to be so to, to to be good at it. Um, but being able to uh, being, if if I were to tell little John growing up, you know something, it would be it's okay to have all of the emotions that you you know that you have, and there's room in the world for all, for you to express them and to to feel them and to own them and to you know to to be part of you. It's okay. Um, and, you know, even looking at my kids now, trying to say, you know, actually some negative tension in our relationship is really valuable. Um, you to be able to see that it's okay for you to be angry at me, me to be angry at you, and to work those out. And that it's going to be okay. And that we're going to be, we're gonna be um, connected even with that. That's really powerful because they need to be able to take that into their adult relationships, um, and you know else they'll you know they'll struggle they'll struggle those places too, um, and it'll become that intergenerational uh, negative baggage that gets passed on. So I'm trying to trying to do something different in that regard.
1: That conversation with um, younger John about it's okay to be have a full range of emotions and to be angry. Mm. Because if you don't, you'll hurt the people you care about in
0: ways that you don't intend in ways that you don't understand. And they, and they may not understand. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in my partner that, um, you know, that she's quite, um, attuned. She has a, she's just finishing her master's in, uh, psychotherapy. And so, you know, being able to say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting this from you, even though you don't intend it. Um, you know, let's deal with it. Um, that's a, that's a gift.
1: What you're talking about there as well is this process of like becoming more self-aware about yourself. Because you're completely right. I mean, a lot of the stuff I've been reading recently about psychology talks about how we actually have, as exactly as you said, have this default to just reinforcing ourselves, reinforcing the way we think and believe and searching for evidence that confirms it and confirms the identity we want to have of ourselves. But to become self-aware is, is a very difficult challenge requires a huge amount of humility, feedback, <laughs> um, uh, you know, unlearning, learning. Um, what's, what has been the, the, the practical ways that you've gone on that journey to become more self-aware? Is it therapy? Is it just the feedback from your partner? What is...
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think first go through something really horribly painful where you have to reconsider everything um, and, you know, who you are um, and to be willing to put those on the, on the table and say, you know, I thought I was being a great partner. But I wasn't. Um you know, and and being able to being able to redefine the givens of who you think you are. Um uh that's that's really that's really painful. Um and you know, you 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 come up with these ways of thinking about yourself for a reason. Um and they're typically defense mechanisms from a very young age. So these are not easy things to to give up. Um but to me, it was, it was, I had to do it or I would lose connection with everyone that I cared about. And to me, it was, it was it's, you know, connection is worth it. Um, and my, uh, I can remember my grandmother, who was one of the first ones who taught me to love food. Um, I had a very strange relationship, have a very strange relationship with food um, in that regard. But she, um, you know, she, she was, um, and late in her life, she was an amazing cook and I could see the love felt the love she had for me and the food that she prepared. Um, and late in life, she was in a retirement home and and uh, some health inspector deemed some of the food had been passed like its expiry date. Um, she came to me and she said, they were trying to serve us food that was unfit for human consumption. You know? And we were like, oh, that's terrible. We'll fix that. Um, but I always worried that I somehow, particularly in a in a romantic partner setting, was unfit for human consumption, um, and the, maybe maybe in my weird, isolated countercultural upbringing, there were skill sets that was that worked in being a, a business leader, but maybe those very things disqualified me from being successful in a romantic relationship Um, and so overcoming overcoming that sense of being unfit for human consumption um, in a romantic setting is uh you know that's hard
1: and was that causing some some form of self-sabotage in the romantic context
0: inevitably inevitably Um, so um and being able to in, in being able to go back and accept the negative emotions um, you know, it's not up to anybody else to express my anger for me. That's up to me. Um, should be up to me, um, and I should be able to spontaneously experience that in real time and express that in appropriate levels. Um, that's that's uh, that's my to do list.
1: Have you been too much of a nice guy? Is that? Is that I'm like,
0: I'm <laughs> uh, so maybe sometimes, but yeah, I mean, therapy is therapy is great. I, I highly recommend it. You know, uh, it, you cannot over invest in your mental health and that that comes from you know someone who grew up with a psychiatrist for a dad Um, Mm. um, and maybe maybe like you know the cobbler's kids don't have shoes Um, you know i think uh you know now i'm I'm, i invest heavily in my mental health there's there's an unlimited budget for for that
1: there's a lot of what you were saying resonates with me very very um terrifyingly and i the parts that really i was i was most um intrigued by is I sometimes think in my romantic relationship that I am maybe negligent and I justify it to to myself as because I'm, you know, working so hard and I'm trying to provide so much and I'm, you know, and I think sometimes I'm, you know, I might think to myself, well, they just don't understand. I'm doing all of this hard work and... They should re- respect you. Not know respect me. Is they should be more appreciative of all this hard work I'm doing, and it's such a. I know it's such a selfish way to look at a relationship because mm. I'm serving myself, and then justifying my my almost neglecting someone by saying, "Well, I'm basically serving myself." Mm. It does actually does, it, and that's yeah. when you were speaking. I was a bit scared that that's me in, in some ways. Yeah, well, you remember
0: from the film Forrest Gump, where yeah. he's talking to to, to his girlfriend Janine, or the, the girl he loves, and he says, "You know, I'm not a smart man, Jenee, but I do know what love is." And I feel like I'm the foil for that, where I might I might in some ways be a smart guy, but I'm not at all convinced that I have any grasp, firm grasp of what love is. Um, and you know, w- what what does love, Re- what does like authentic, real love look like? And it's probably not what I try to give my partner sometimes, you know, I mean, you know, actually understanding what, what she wants, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm giving, you know, some imaginary, you know, construct what I think they want and then saying, well, you know, you should have that uh, rather than pay, really paying attention and going, you know, what is it? What is it that makes you understand and feel loved
1: and known and appreciated and valued? And gonna, that's what I want to do. Um, Did you not see that growing up at all? Or were you just not taught it? Taught, you know what I mean? Because sometimes you can see it but not know what's actually going on behind the scenes. So you can hmm. see, oh, they look happy, but not know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think when I look back on it, there, there were people who I felt connection with
0: and that I felt, you know, some warmth and um, in, in their presence. And, you know, I didn't understand that. I didn't go, that's love. You know, I mean, that, that, that really is... Um, you know them seeing me and, and and you know reaching out to me and connecting with me and um, but you know looking maybe it's only looking back that you can kind of see those things accurately and, and, and meaningfully.
1: When you look forward, then what are the big what are the big goals for you? And I you know I'm I'm not someone that buys into making you know vision boards and having a five year plan and all that nonsense because I think there's a certain agility required to be successful personally and professionally and I'm putting your flag too far. At, you know, in the future is probably not a great idea in that in that situation. But what are you? What are the when you think about your life in ten years' time? What will it? What will the, the foundations of that life look like for it to be a, a really great one?
0: Yeah. Well, um, I think you know, from a business perspective, uh, I, I love what I what I get to do. I mean, I, it it feels like it doesn't it doesn't you know feel like work um, now. Um, i mean it feels like a gift to be able to be a part of this business a part of this you know a, a family who who believes in the integrity of their product and there's, there's no pressure to compromise in any way this thing that you know that, that we're doing um and um you know that feels fantastic so you know i i think that the team that we've built is is capable of more i don't know what that is um but i'm excited to see what that could be um and um, and personally, you know, I think, um, I've, I've got a lot of growth to do. I think I've just kind of scratched the surface of the, all the, the ways that I cover up the motivate the true motivations that I have. Um, so I want to, I want to, I want to go after that with conviction and competitiveness. You know, I'm, I'm a very competitive guy. I love, uh, you know, whatever it is that I do, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of go after it. Um, so, um. Yeah. A lot to read, a lot to, um, but, you know, I, I think sometimes that urgency doesn't work in mental health. Um, and that kind of, you, know, you can't rush to self-awareness. You gotta, <laughs> sometimes it kind of, sometimes it's, you know, kind of like the bird that kind of lands on your hand when you're, when you're you know, being patient. Um, so um, I think I've got to expand my
1: repertoire
0: of, of, of intensity uh, in that regard. One step
1: at a time and um, vulnerability being vulnerable, I think is one step at a time. And it's kind of like opening, opening the door a little bit at a time. It has been for me anyway, I think, cause I was so scared to be vulnerable. I think for much of my life that I tried the experiment of being vulnerable and looked around <laughs> and it seemed to be okay. It seemed to help me, it seemed to help others. I opened the door a little bit further. It helped Mm -hmm. me, it helped others. Mm -hmm. And so over the the last couple of years, this is part of the reason we do this podcast is I've been able to be more vulnerable. And it really is such a selfish thing Mm -hmm. because it's the most unbelievable way to live, to just be able to sit here and talk about masturbation, my sex life, mental health. I've got anxiety about this. It's such a free way to live. Mm -hmm. The science supports that. If You think about those that live most, most in tune with who they actually are seem to be uh, the happiest. But when I think about the real adverse consequences you see sometimes in certain communities who are not being allowed to live as they are, the suicide rates spike and everything. So hmm. getting closer to your true vulnerable self, I think is such a gift. And then the way it resonates, you'll see as a leader, I'm sure you saw in the pandemic, hmm. you know, vulnerable leaders in the pandemic, I think one vulnerable hmm. leaders, when it comes to letting people go always win. Hmm. So, um,
0: you no, know, but when I, when I was preparing for this, the, this conversation with you, Stephen, I went back and looked at some of the presentations I'd done to my, to, to my business. And one of the presentations that I did was called, um, have you known hard times? And, you know, and I went through and talked about my hard times, um, and being able to, and to me, that was a real, that was a real turning point as well. Um, saying, you know, it's okay. It's not only okay, it's, it's, it's really important for to To acknowledge that we've all had really hard times that like break you apart as a human being and you know make you make you question everything um and that's okay here um mm. that was a um and 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 then the feedback that I got to say that that was that that was you know that was a positive thing mm. that was that was amazingly uh um, yeah fulfilling
1: you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And it means that i can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show so i become one of the thirty-seven thousand companies that have already made the move over to netsuite netsuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks so head to netsuite.com slash bartlett for a free product tour back to the episode um we do have a closing tradition on this podcast where the previous guests ask the next guest i mean you've done your preparations. Yes, so i'm questions. sure you yeah. know um and i don't read it until i open the book so the question is oh who is the person you'd most like to say sorry to but haven't wow
0: i've got a pretty long list um I would say, um, I'd say my my ex-wife for um, being so blind to the things that I brought to the relationship that must have upset her for years, um, and you know, and insisted that you know that they weren't um, things that you know, I had said or done and and really, I mean, I guess, I I guess that would apply to anybody who I've had a romantic relationship with that, you know, that I didn't, um, I didn't bring my true authentic self that even, even though I thought I was, um, and I thought I was living a purposeful, you know, life, um, but, but didn't, um, but then I'd also, I, I guess I'd say, um, um, you know, I, I think there's a, a dynamic with my parents that that probably um, falls into that category of making amends, um, and you know, as a um, both as the recipient and the perpetrator of you know of some trauma um, in that regard, um, and then I, I, I guess I'd, I'd have to say uh, to Hayden and Lucy, and my kids, for um, you know for the for not being there in the moments when they needed me. Um, and, you know, I, I can blame the UK court system as much as I want, but the fact is that there were moments where they woke up and needed both their parents and, uh, and, and there, and I wasn't there. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm deeply sorry for that. Um, and yeah, you know, and there, and there are probably, um, there are probably lots of others, um, in that list. Um, uh, but that's a, that's a short summary.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your wisdom as it relates to business and the story of Five Guys, which is just tremendously inspiring. And it's always such an honor to get to speak to CEOs and operators that have been part of disruption and really underpinning and sort of really unpicking how they've gone about that. That's so immensely valuable to me. And I've taken so much away from, from that in terms of the simplicity, in terms of detail, in terms of putting the customer first, in terms of the importance of talent and this negative hiring concept which i'm going to adopt in all of my companies but even more importantly for me is is the the vulnerability that you've shown and the the human behind all of that because that's the thing that ultimately people can resonate with the most because no matter where we reach in the in our careers no matter how how high we climb it seems so clearly obvious that when none of us are immune from the the consequences of just being a human being and Mm we can all relate to that regardless of where we are in the world. So thank you so much. It's been such an inspiring conversation and uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime.
0: Absolutely. Pleasure. Thanks for the time together.